Hi, this is Ed Pernick from Shop Talk Live. Right now, I'm cruising through the Amazon jungle in Ecuador. No joke. Yep, I'm on vacation. And to make matters worse, three of my best guys from Shop Talk Live are on the road covering new stories for Fine Woodworking Magazine. That means all you loyal Shop Talk Live listeners are going to have to wait till Tuesday, March 25th, 2014 for our next episode. In the meantime, I thought I'd share one of our greatest hits episodes. From way back in October 2012, here's our interview with Lee Valley's very own Robin Lee on how your hand tools are made. Oh, and by the way, if for any reason I'm not back on the 25th, it could be that I was caught attempting to smuggle some beautiful tropical hardwoods up north. Send help. Thanks. Enjoy. And we'll see you back here for a new episode on Tuesday, March 25th. Got Rob Lee here on the microphones on the Shop Talk Live podcast, and so you're sort of our guinea pig. All right, you comfortable in that guinea I'm pig role? I'm very comfortable with that. So, I've been learning a lot up here. I'm up on, up here on a visit and having a great time. I'm on my way to go shoot an article with Michael Fortune and had a great chance to stop by here at Lee Valley, and I've learned a ton. And for the folks who don't end up seeing the article. Maybe they won't have that issue or, or whatever. We'll do a little bit of redundancy here just to uh, cover just a little bit of the fascination, the fascinating stuff that uh, John Benzin and I have both found out by visiting. Um, John summed it up as coming up here is like trying to take a drink out of a fire hose. That pretty much sums it up. But um, Rob, uh, it's Rob and Lee, but Rob's okay? Rob's just fine. Um, Rob, can you tell us you know, go back down memory lane and pick up the Lee Valley story a little bit from the beginning for folks who maybe don't know? Well, the uh, Lee Valley and, and Veritas are both uh, family businesses. Um, there's a number of family members uh, working here uh, and have worked here in the past. Um, but it was established uh, in the late 70s um, by my father, who was uh, working for the federal government, uh, you know, as a career civil servant. And that was back in the time when the civil service was very professional, and and it's uh, not the red tape that government is today. Are you saying that they're unprofessional these days? Not at all. Not at all. It's a <laughs> it's a little bit different story though. Now the civil service was very much smaller, and everybody knew yeah. each other, and it was it was run much more like a business than government. Um, but he uh, he really wanted to uh, to work for himself, and and being a woodworker, he grew up on a, a farm in Saskatchewan on a homestead, actually, with uh, you know the proverbial uh, Abe Lincoln log building with uh, you know no chinking between the logs and no electricity. Do you know that Michael Fortune has one of those on his property? Oh no, I didn't know that. Yeah, he's got a basically a homestead. I guess you can get uh, land still, or when he bought his, pretty cheap from the government, and. Uh, He's got one of those old buildings there. He fixed it up as a place for place for apprentices to come and visit and live. Yeah, well, it, it really does build character, I guess. If you uh, <laughs> if you grew up in that environment, he filled the gaps. Yeah, between so the logs. Dad did uh, a fair amount of woodworking, and and in those days, mail order really was mail order. I mean, you you had catalogs, you dealt with the mail. Telephone calls were still really expensive uh, for long distance, um, so everything was done, you know, through the post and. He couldn't find businesses in Canada that were selling the you know good quality woodworking tools that uh, that he was after. So, uh, a general rule of thumb for for the American audience is is if there's ten of something in the U.S., there's there's one in Canada. So it's a it's pretty much a ten to one. Except ratio. comedians, you have a good ratio of comedians. Broadcasters too. Broadcasters. We have a lot of broadcasters. I think I think all of your major networks use. Uh, Canadians as anchors. Well, you speak the Queen's English. Is that that's probably part that, of it? That could be. Yeah. Um, but when he went looking for for woodworking companies, he, he was able to find you know the Woodcrafts and the Garrett Wades and Constantines and uh, Like Tongue at that time, um, and there was just nobody in Canada selling tools. So he thought that that would be a, you know a good business and could eventually you know grow to employ ten or fifteen people and. Uh, <laughs> And unfortunately, it just got a little out of control. It sort of tracks the fine woodworking story. Uh, it's pretty contemporary to the fine woodworking story. When was, uh, was it 78 when he was first starting out? 78, fall of 78 was our first catalog. And fine woodworking's really 1976, I think the story begins. So you were really catching a wave of folks who were waking up to woodworking as a hobby. Well, I, I think very much. And I think it was, uh, um, you know, a lot of, uh, 
people that were around the baby boom. The baby boomers had started to grow away, and, and that entire generation was turning back towards hobbies and, and away from uh, you know, raising kids. Yeah. Um, so I, I think, yes, it was very much a, an ideal time for this type of and business. And there was a cultural sort of zeitgeist going on at the time, too, that, that fit, working with your hands. And yeah, a lot of back-to-the-earth, uh, Mother right. Earth news type of uh, Are you talking about hippies, Robin? Well, no, no, not uh, not hippies. That was, a, that was an American phenomenon. <laughs> yeah. Um, we had all the draft people up here at... <laughs> Oh, did they? This is where we all escaped. Uh, well, right. that's right. Yeah. That's right. In that's right. the well, that was probably uh, not quite at the end of the seventies, more towards the earlier part of the decade. Right. But there was then definitely a general movement toward people wanting something real and wanting to work with their hands and wanting to be more self sufficient. And woodworking fit right into that. Yeah, and I, I think really people started looking at quality of life. Um, yep. Exactly. And less at you know the American Canadian dream. Yep. Uh, you know they they. You know, it was the rat race and quality of life, and and uh, and getting back to the earth, working with your hands, all of those, uh, all of those good things. And counter materialism, you know, sort of uh, trying to get away from the sort of materialism of the fifties. I guess, in a way, when, you know, not to get too historical here, but when people came back from the war, especially in the states, they really wanted the mom and the apple pie and the two cars in the driveway and all that, and things got pretty. I guess Ozzy and Harriet was the thing that people talked yeah, about back absolutely. then. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And so this was sort of a counterculture back in the other direction in a way. Well, I, I think it, it stemmed a lot from Dad's desire to work for himself. Right, um, right. You know, and there's, there's a lot of freedom in yeah. doing that. You can, you can do what you believe in. Um, you know, you answer to yourself. You, you take the risks for yourself and, and hopefully generate any rewards for yourself. Um, yeah. Now, nowadays, I mean... The catalog's taken off. We'll get to it in a second, but um, the the business, not just the catalog, but the whole entire business has taken off. You guys employ how many people now? Oh, that's really that's really a tough one. Uh, I, always, I always I always say about eight hundred uh, full time equivalents. And it it varies by season because we we have a lot of retail staff, and uh, you have tens of thousands of products in your uh, SKUs and products in your catalog. Uh, yeah, it's a it's a lot of products. We we usually have among the four catalogs right now somewhere between seventeen thousand, nineteen thousand active SKUs, but mm-hmm. a lot more replacement parts and so on. And and uh, and of course we stock all of those parts. Yeah. So it's uh, you know it's a big inventory to manage. So this coming year, Lee Valley turns thirty five years old, and uh, and if you look at the Veritas story, and that's what I want to talk about next, um, is the Veritas brand. Um, that's more closer to sort of 30 years. That was about, if you if you trace it all the way back to the sort of the dovetail marker, the first. Yeah, right? there were there were there were a number of early products that 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 sort of pushed us into manufacturing, and the dovetail marker was certainly one. Um, we so had it a- started as a as retailing other people's products. Yeah, basically yeah. Uh, finding sourcing all this really great equipment and tools and gadgets and whatever it was and, and but then but your dad Leonard was a was a real as I understand a real inveterate tinkerer so he it was just a fountain of ideas well you know I, I think that you know anybody that grows up on a farm is used to assessing a problem and devising their own solution right. to the problem I mean you have to really be uh, a lateral thinker because yep. uh, uh, when you're on a homestead, you can't run out to the nearest Home Depot and uh, you know buy the size of bolt that you need or or whatever. And mm-hmm. you know, always the the saying up here is uh, uh, you fix everything with binder twine, and <laughs> uh, and that's uh, you know that's that's a typical farm solution. Yeah. Uh, I didn't always have duct tape, but you always <laughs> had binder twine. And so somewhere along the way, very early on, you uh, you started your or Leonard at that time started putting some of his own ideas and making them a reality. And I guess the very first thing was the dovetail marker. The little uh, was that the first product that if you if you I know it didn't. I have think it the was ver- the first product that we actually you know laid hands on in house. We did a lot of work with other suppliers, okay. you know, getting people to make things for us or to change their product. Mm-hmm. But actually, you know, putting tools to metal uh, yep. that would that would have to be the first. And then in the early nineties. You actually incorporated the name Veritas as your in-house brand for the things that you came up with, invented, and manufactured, developed, and manufactured. Is that 
See, now I would be expected to know things like that. Um, <laughs> I know. But I believe because... we were actually first Lee Valley Manufacturing okay. Limited. Okay. Um, and Veritas was a, was a brand name. And once we started actually selling to other people, right. we tried to separate the Lee Valley name okay. uh, from the products we manufacture because it's we want to sell to people that sell against us in the marketplace. And so it's, it's uh, you know, Coke doesn't want to have any product branded Pepsi. Um, but they could have it branded something else. Um, And that really uh, had us change the name to Veritas uh, Manufacturing. Yeah, so zoom forward to today. It's a lot of zooming, but let's zoom forward to today. And the the name Veritas is synonymous with, I mean, all you have to do is flip through the pages of Fine Woodworking and see it winning award after editor's award after editor's award. It's really become synonymous with innovation and hand tools, and it's really your own in-house uh, company brand for woodworking. It's kind of a flagship or maybe the flagship brand for you guys, isn't it? Well, it, it, you know, it very much is. It's, it's where we make our reputation. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's what every cataloger wants to have as an exclusive product. And, and it doesn't mean, you know, like they do in the electronics industry, generating your own part number for a particular receiver so that nobody can price match it. Um, and those kinds of tricks. But, um, you know, exclusive product is is what builds companies like Hammaker Schlemmer or yep. or Brookstone or or any of any of the people who are who are on the cutting edge of their industry. Now, I pick two two gift type type catalogs, but but certainly you want to have unique product. Um, and really, what you really want to do is you want to satisfy your customers and keep them coming back. So, you know, the Veritas product was. Uh, product we built with our ears as much as with our hands you know we we listen to what people want and what they like and don't like and 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 incorporate that yeah and we'll definitely get to that because that goes into you know where ideas come from where your great ideas come from and the fact that you guys listen um uh is seems you know is obviously a real integral part of it but before we get to that what does it mean for a tool to be veritas in other words to get that name on it, what does it have to satisfy internally for you guys, for you guys to say, yeah, that can be a Veritas tool? Well, it's, um, it's a judgment call most of the time, but there are a few basic principles. First of all, it has to be made in North America. Um, and by that, I mean, you know, not just lip service, not just to fit the customs regulation, but, you know, we have to be able to, to say, you know, this is a North American product. Um, we manufacture in Canada as well as the United States. Um, you know, a lot of components, a lot of subcontracting. You can't do absolutely everything on every product. Um, but that's that's very important to us. The second thing is that there has to be an element of innovation to it. You know, when we reproduce a product, we won't put a Veritas name on it. Um, and, you know, it's it's got to have a particular value proposition and... And it's got to be something that we have the intent to distribute, because of course we do have we do have uh, customers out there uh, on the wholesale side, and and you don't want to label things Veritas and say no, you can't buy that. Um, so those are the three loose rules that that we have. So you'll you'll have a product like the Mark II uh, honing gauge, um, honing guide, and that seems to be pretty much from the ground up a pretty revolutionary product. I don't know if there was anything quite like that with the no, that's that's actually got uh, utility patents on it. We do we do a tremendous amount of of uh, intellectual property protection. Yeah. Um, you know, which are which are utility well, patents have to. and design patents. Sure. Yeah. And uh, then and then you take another product like the wheel marking gauge. Now that's we talked about that the other night. Um, that's not a brand new idea. You mentioned somebody back in the fifties who had that, but you guys made innovations to that product. There was there was a, a honed. Uh, wheel as a cutting uh, blade was not a new idea, but you put O-rings inside it and did things so it holds its setting. And that's right. We refined, we refined the design and 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 made a very small in- incremental improvement. And it yeah. was enough of an innovation that it changed the feel of the tool. Yeah. And and that's one that we would we would call a Veritas product. You know, it takes something like the little Victor block plane, which we did redesign from the ground up based on a Stanley product, mm-hmm. um, but we didn't call that a Veritas product yeah. because, you know, that was really, the elegance in that product was really Stanley's. And, so that's and that judgment ours. call that you're talking about. You have to make a judgment call, 
and uh, and you can you can sort of see it's like didn't quite make the cut, did make the cut, or completely innovative on the Mark II, and it could anything across that range. You, you have to make some kind of a judgment call. That's right, and and you know to be clear, Veritas makes an awful lot of product for Lee Valley Tools. They make a lot of product uh, under the UTW brand, which is Utilitas uh, oh. Toolworks. And you sell overseas, all over the place. We, Japan, sell, we sell to a lot Russia, of other, yeah, absolutely. UK, Europe, yeah, all over, all over the world. Uh, and Lee Valley goes. buys roughly eighty percent of it, or you, or sells roughly eighty percent of it, and the other twenty, low twenties percent goes goes elsewhere. From what it, it varies from product to product. Right. Um, the overall the the tricky thing to interpret that number is is Lee Valley automatically sells everything that yes. Veritas. Uh, right. manufacturers where you know other customers will pick and choose right. from the line but they're a separate company with a separate bottom line right and uh they're run somewhat separately from what i understand they they, re- they really are um it's it's sort of an arm's length transaction so that we can you know say you know well you know woodcraft will pay the same price as lee valley does for this product gotcha um, you know so it's it creates a a, a little bit of an arm's length um transaction. You want fairness to everyone else who carries the product we we certainly do because you know it's it's uh, we all very much compete on service um, yeah. more than more than price. Today I was following the castings through their little life cycle. That's fascinating. I was in the manufacturing plant today, and uh, uh, for those of you, you've got to read John Benson's article in issue two thirty in the this year's Tools and Shops. It's a little bit of uh, pandering to ourselves here, but uh, um, it's a fantastic article. But but we also, you know, like there's no way in a four-page article we can pack an eighth of what we found out here. So we're doing a lot of web extras like this podcast and like some video that you'll find on findwoodworking.com of the manufacturing process. And out there I was following the life of a casting, and you could really see that you guys aren't uh, kidding around when you talk about that That every single part of that staying in North America. I mean, from from the folks who do the castings for you the the guys here who develop the prototypes and the models and then the people who do the castings and then it comes back you machine it here goes back out for heat treating that's an ontario or an ontario uh ontario company that does that and then back it comes again and you really are you could see you know from at every level uh it's staying in north america yeah it it really is um you know and that's a that's a becoming increasingly more difficult because as soon as you talk about manufacturing something like tools, people have visions of automobile assembly plants and, and so on. And, and the truth is mo- most manufacturers are quite small. Yeah. And a lot of um, the industries that we use doing things like, like casting iron, yeah. for example, most of the people in North America that are casting iron are geared to much higher volumes than people yeah. like us or Lee Nielsen or... Or, or any small tool manufacturer would use. So it's really quite a challenge to, to, find a, to find a good source. And you have to find somebody who's willing to work with you and grow with you right. um, and or use you to fill in the small gaps between those, oh. those, those very major orders that they get for, uh, you know, carburetor castings or transmission casings or, yeah. or uh, alternator parts. Or Fine Woodworking suddenly uh, does an article about how your Bradpoint bits are top of the line, and your order—I think your orders went up by six hundred percent back there. They were telling me, and uh, you need a supplier who's ready to give you a lot of drill blanks. Well, you know that 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 really happens. Um, you know, you hate it and you love it when <laughs> yeah. it happens. The uh, the worst case for us was uh, a number of years ago. Uh, we have a, a product on the gardening side called Bag Bomb. And it's it's a uh, lanolin petroleum base. I know the stuff. And a sup- yeah, it's for cow's udders. Yep. But people well, use it on their hands. <clears throat> well, Shania Twain puts it in her hair. <laughs> and this got coverage. It's on, working for on, her. Well, it, well, it did. Yeah. Um, and this got coverage on news stories, and it sold out everywhere in North America uh-huh. in, in, in a matter of uh, a few days. And, um, you know, that... Uh, uh, that gave us fits for months, as as one radio station after another picked You're it up. Not used to being part of the pop culture scene. No, no, it's it, it's not. <laughs> but uh, um, you know, it's, it's it happens. Uh, it's rare in our line of work, but occasionally you stumble. I wanted to ask you though. I think when I was talking about heat treating, actually, that was probably the blades that go out for uh, heat treating and then come back. Probably not the castings on the plane bodies, but. Um, 
the blades, you know, that's another thing. You know, Veritas all made in North America. Veritas making its own blades now and, um, and lapping the backs of blades, which most companies don't do, to uh, a super um, high grit, dead flat. Um, like you and I did, you can look at the backs of those in a low at a low uh, angle, and, and it's a perfect mirror, no distortion. Uh, that's saving people a lot of you know two three hours of lapping the backs of their chisels and plane irons. The North America thing, the lapping the backs of plane irons. I don't really see you guys trumpeting those. I I do see mentions of those things, but should you beat the drum a little louder? Well. You know, the answer to that is yes, yes, and no. Um, but I always ask myself, you know, just if you go out trumpeting that stuff, does the consumer really believe it? And and you know, you try to you try to be as conservative as possible. Maybe it's a Canadian thing, um, <laughs> but you know, you don't want to be going out saying, "Look how good we are," um, or "Look what we do." Um, it's very difficult to strike a balance between you know pumping yourself up and putting somebody else down. Um, and, and we're very sensitive to that. You know, we would rather have customers come to their own conclusion. We'll point out, we'll point out the advantages and disadvantages, um, you know, when it comes to things like, like flatness, um, you know, it's, it's what we decided to do is, was say, you know, gee, we're going to put out a surface that you can only make worse. Um, and then all criticism goes do away. Do not lap the backs yeah. of your yeah. own. Once you get your Veritas blade, do not touch the back other than just a high, high polish. Well, but you can. You yeah. can. and You can mess it up, too. You can mess it up, but that's your choice. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm just telling you. That's, this is my perspective. Please don't. I'm just, uh, this is the editor of the Fine Woodworking Talking. You can, you can have a different perspective, of course. But, yeah. but it's, you know, it, it's, it's really tough. I mean, you, you want to go out. Uh, I think maybe we take the choice of the the path of quiet confidence yeah. how about that yeah and, and instead of uh uh you know exploding stars and and you know look how great this is well you want word of mouth and you want other people to do your marketing for you you don't you know that's the best kind of marketing you can get you know uh, so i can understand the 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 uh, philosophy there for sure um so how do you guys you know the lee nielsen comparison always comes up um when i saw we invited both of you guys. You both were kind enough to come and support our first ever event, Fine Woodworking Live, and you guys played beautifully together in the corner of our little vendor area. And I wasn't surprised by that, but uh, some folks are um, because you both do, you know, high-end hand tools, um, North American, you know, uh, generated high-end hand tools. So how do you see yourself um you know, vis-a-vis uh, Lee Nielsen, how do you see the relationship between the two companies? Well, surprisingly, you know, c- consumers always approach us if it, as if it's a Coke and Pepsi yeah. type of uh, situation, and it's really not. Um, if you took the entire product lines of both companies and put them side by side, you know, there's surprisingly little overlap mm-hmm. in the entire plane line. Um, and it's, it's, what Tom does is he does a phenomenal job with with you know Stanley who is who did the best job in design of woodworking tools for so many years whether it was through their own knowledge or through the acquisition of of, of other companies in the industry right um, but they were really the acme of of woodworking uh, for many many years so Tom does a fantastic job you know out Stanleying Stanley on on very classic designs. The comparison I always use is we're jazz, we're, we're Tom's classical. Yeah. Um, we throw away everything and start from first principles. Yes. Um, because manufacturing technology technologies have changed. Some materials technologies have changed. Something like ductile iron just wasn't available to yeah. Stanley uh, in the heyday of plane manufacturing. And the difference in material properties really influenced, you know, what they could make and what they couldn't make. You know, the reason that you know, low angle planes are so rare is because in gray cast iron, the mouths blew out. They were hugely unpopular. Uh, they were viewed as, as almost being defective. Right. And, and hence, it's why they're collectible, too, is, is uh, they didn't sell well and what sold broke. Um, so, you know, there was an opportunity for us to say, hey, you know, let's go back to, to uh, and see what we can do with newer materials, with some different options. You know, literally... You know, standing on the shoulders of 
people who went before and 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 maybe hybridizing some of the the features so you're starting from vintage in the article um one of the really fascinating things is your amazing collection of vintage tools here i think it's a little bit of uh of of by necessity but it's a lot of just by love of hand tools and like you said in the article it's an excuse to collect <laughs> these amazing you know uh, I mean, just sitting here in your office, looking around, there's drawer after drawer af- uh, of just classic tools, tools that are no longer made from an era of craftsmanship that no longer exists. I mean, it's unreal. And you do start with vintage often. It, by and large, you do start with vintage when you start to innovate a new tool. A- absolutely. And we do that for a number of reasons. Um, First of all, a lot of the older designs were very organic. You know, the pattern makers of of a hundred years ago, you know, were supreme woodworkers. Um, you know, they they were really uh, hybrid uh, craftsmen. You know, they understood metal, they understood wood. Um, but we also use the antiques as hand models. You know, it's a very very inexpensive way to say, hey, I wonder how this fits. You know, if you're going to design a, a tenon saw. It's easy to go into a collection, pull out 50 tenon saws, and, and check the hang angles, check the weight, uh, you know, check the length. The hang angle you know. is how the handle relates to the blade, right? That's right. Yeah. That's right. Uh, and, and check the handle size. Yeah. And it really gives you a jump forward. It's a great starting point. Principles. Why start from zero when you can stand on the shoulders of these great people? That's right. That's yeah. right. So uh, that's really the approach we've taken. But then from there... You know, I I was fascinated to come up here and see, because I've always been a fan of the stuff. I'm a former machinist myself, which I've mentioned about 16 times since I've been here. But um, And I appreciate the machining. I, I can see the design. I appreciate the thoughtfulness, the knurling, the, you know, all the little things, the lubrication, the deburring, you know, every little thing. I can sort of appreciate it as a, as a, a, a former craftsman in, in metal. And... Um, it's been fascinating to come up here and see the design teams in action, you know, in CAD, and then see how you guys are employing rapid prototyping machines now. And that lets the designers sort of fast track their designs and their model making. And um, if people uh, look around for the online extras for uh, issue 230 for the Tools and Shops issue, um, they're going to find a lot more that I collected on the uh, while I was here, um, of just all the different parts of the process, all the way through to inspection, hand assembly, you know, the whole thing. Um, Let me ask you, um, do you ever... Oh, what I wanted to ask you is, okay, if you guys are jazz and you're you're starting with vintage, but then you're really throwing all the rules away, and, uh, you know, where do your ideas come from? Where are the places that you get uh, ideas? They must not all come from in-house. Well... A fair number of them do, mm-hmm. a very large proportion. Um, you know, I mentioned earlier, we, we build with our ears. We listen to what uh, people like and what they don't like. And it's, you know, when you're manufacturing, it's a real cop-out to make the same thing as somebody else is already making. Right. Um, you know, all you can do is eat someone else's lunch. You know, we we prefer to make our own. Uh, right. And you use the example of, of Lee Nielsen and, uh, and Veritas lines. You know, those are very complementary. You, you would think that they would not be complimentary, but, you know, when we go to a trade show and Lee Nielsen's at the show, we both do better than mm-hmm. when one of the others is That's absent. That's interesting. That's interesting. And believe it or not, you know, there are, there are, we try to steer clear of many of the same types of products that other people do. So um, you look for gaps in the marketplace. You look for gaps. That's where the real opportunity is. Yeah. Uh, I'll give you an example. Our designers just love uh, a little plug here for uh, Benchcrafted. You know, they make fabulous hardware. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just it's just fun to spin those uh, those wheels and watch the vice work. We can make that, mm-hmm. but that would neither help us, yeah, nor nor be good for Benchcrafted. And you know, we have just flat out said, you know, we're going to abdicate that particular I- area because you know it's good to have that kind of choice out there. You know, and now look at all of the different choices that there are in vices. Yes. You know, you've got Hovarder, you've got Benchcraft, and you've what got Lee Nielsen's Lee doing. Nielsen, you've got what we're doing. You've got the Veritas twin screw, you got the new stuff you guys are doing. Yeah, and, and that's really good for the woodworking right. market is is to have that choice. There is no one correct solution for everybody. Mm-hmm. And so you and do that, get so you do get ideas also though from coming in from customers like 
does someone ever just straight up suggest you should do X? Yes, yes, and that and that happens, and and we we give people royalties on on that basis. Sometimes we send them off to other companies too. Uh, right. You know, you try and act in the the best interest of the inventor. Um, and as I say, you know, people tend to perceive perceive that you're much larger than you are. Um, yeah. When we talk about manufacturing, we can be doing runs of fifty pieces, or a hundred pieces, or two hundred pieces. Now we could also be doing runs of ten thousand, and yeah. so on. But uh, the manufacturing is is not really on the scale you would expect. Um, you've toured through the machine shop. There's yeah. a ton of CNC equipment in there. Oh yeah, and I it's shot because video of some of it. Well, and it's because we make so many parts at such low volume. Yeah. That the only way we can do it is with is with CNC. Uh, Tools. Speak of uh, people thinking you're bigger than you are. When I was on my way up here this time, someone at my wife's work said, "Why does, is he going to take some kind of corporate jet to get up here?" Which was a real scream. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'll be flying coach. Uh, you know, yeah, Taunton Press is a company that does um, beautiful things, but is you know smaller than sometimes people imagine. You know, uh, inside. Uh, but anyway, uh, I digress. So. Um, so I can see the differentiation with Lee Nielsen in a really particular instance, and that's the uh, how you guys really went in the bevel up direction while they were doing bedrock style bevel down uh, uh, bench planes. You guys went bevel up, which opened up a whole world of uh, yeah, and, and maybe that's oversimplifying. It is, it is, and it isn't. You know, the the bevel up. There's a lot more to it than just you know the blade orientation yeah. uh really what we were trying to do is we wanted blades to be hot swappable you yes. know so that you could move and change your bevel angle very very quickly if you're working with yep. different woods as so many people do yep. now um and and more exotics and you know less quality wood yep. um we also sell into countries so like what, Australia. What where you're talking about there is just to clarify is they can put different bevel angles the bevel the, the sharpened bevel on the plane uh, uh, affects the uh, effective cutting angle as opposed to bevel down, which there's nothing you can do to the bevel to affect the cutting a- a- angle except back bevel the top of except it. Except back bevel, and, yep. and and for years, you know, we we tried to fight that fight. You yep. know, it's it's in the guide to sharpening. It's been in in every piece of instruction we've put out for for bevel down plates, saying, hey, if you want to increase the angle, just put a back bevel on. Mm-hmm. And it's so, um, it's just so contrary. To how people are used to sharpening, ruler trick aside, right. um, you know, which is just, um, you know, a very very shallow uh, yeah. back bevel. Uh, but the other thing we did in doing this is we said we wanted to come up with a set of planes, um, a very very basic set, so that you didn't need eight or ten gotcha. uh, different sizes. But we really took a look at the force um, and and how the force was applied through the blade, and we balanced the plane weight to the blade width. Um, and we did it across three different size planes. And, you know, there's a tremendous amount of thought that, that our designers went through in terms of where the center of gravity is. And, and we've got all of that data for all of Stanley's planes and for all of our planes and so on. And it's really, you know, modeling the use, um, as much as just coming up with a different size. And, you know, it, it makes a very nice set of three planes. Now, we did things, too, to telegraph the use. We didn't put sides on the smoother because, you know what, you don't shoot with a smoother. Right. You know, it's a smoothing plane, yep. and we weren't going to make it a jack of all trades. You yep. know, the jack is mm-hmm. the one that does shooting and so on. Same with the, with the uh, jointer. Um, and there are other subtle changes we did. The, the jointer cuts uh, with about the same effective length as a 7.5, so it's partway between a number 7 and a number 8. Uh, really, because the mouth placement is different, and you know historically i 'm not sure people played you know did all the calculations as mm-hmm. to the the locus that the the blade travels as you cut right. um, you know so there 's a lot of under the hood changes that uh, that took place in in some of those plane lines, but what it really does is it gives another choice. The biggest feature I find with the the bevel ups is the lower bed angle makes the plane just really, really easy to adjust. Yes. Um, 
you know, you're instead of a one for one, you know, one unit down is yes, one unit out. Exactly. It's a five to one. Right. It's, it's like having an, you know, a built-in in words, really fine adjustment. Yeah. Very easy to because set up. Because of the level of incline is much lower. Um, when you move the plane forward, the actual, the blade forward, the actual protrusion beneath the sole is, is happens on a much slower basis as that's, you turn the screw is what you're right. saying for that's the layman right. out there. And, uh, another advantage that, um, I would imagine, and I'm sure this has been covered here, is that because you don't, because you can bed the the blade right in the body of the plane, and you don't have to have a moving frog um, there, you you just have that many fewer um, surfaces where chatter can happen and play and everything else. I'm selling your product here, aren't I? <laughs> you are, you are. But and I don't own I don't own one yet. I'm dying to try them out. I'm just a poor journalist and can't afford them yet, <laughs> and I can't take gifts either. So. Not that you were going well, to offer. You know, there's uh, there's a little bit of truth to what you say, and there's a little bit of uh, uh, hidden fallacy in there too, <laughs> yeah. because um, machining the beds on a low angle plane is an absolute pig. It is okay. really, really a high tolerance operation, um, and and anybody who makes low angle planes will tell you that that it is not straightforward, and most customers can't measure it. Um, yeah. But to be able to hold bed skew on on that lower angle is, you know, yeah, the feed rate's five times uh, yeah. slower. Well, it's five times as difficult to hold to hold your tolerances. So to, get, to get geeky here, what it's too late. We're already getting very geeky. But on a frog, the, uh, the area where the frog contacts the plane body and the area where the plane blade contacts the frog, those are probably smaller areas to deal with in terms of holding a machining tolerance. Do you have to, is it is part of it that you have to hold the machining tolerance across a bigger area? Um, with um, no chatter and no variation in the surface for the blade to bed down on there super solidly. Well, it it, it has it has as much to do with the orientation and the sensitivity to okay. to variations in tolerance. So a one okay. thou tolerance will express five times larger. So the same thing that's working for you in adjustment is working against that's you. Exactly it. That's uh, exactly up and down it. in terms of chatter and bounce in the force applied to that blade. Now I got it. Yep. You straighten me out. Yep. All right, before I let you go, I want to ask you about the, today's marketplace because whenever I talk to any players uh, in this industry and in this craft, you know, on mic, on microphone and off microphone, on the page and off the page and on and off the record, we all tend to talk about uh, a, a bit of a slide in our marketplace in terms of people are aging out of the craft uh, faster, frankly, than they are entering the craft for a variety of reasons. Um, how do you see that issue, and what can we do? What are you guys doing, and what can we all do to try to turn it around? That's a million-dollar question there well, with about well, 16 parts. It, it certainly is, and, and you could do about 25 podcasts uh, into the future on, on exactly that topic. Um, I think the pessimistic view is, is, is that, uh, you know, any of the manual arts are going to die off unless they're valued, essentially, by, by society and by the, by the consumer. Um, you know, so, so if parents engage in woodworking, children will engage in woodworking. Um, if the value of working with wood is there, whether for, from an entertainment purpose, whether from a hobby purpose, or whether from a commercial purpose, is there then 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 the craft will continue uh but certainly it's under a lot of pressure from competing uh from from things that are competing for your discretionary free time um you know if you're if you're going to be uh playing world of warcraft for uh, 27 hours on the weekend instead of uh instead of uh gardening or or doing woodworking um you know that's that's competition of a different sort so I mean, there's there, we face a lot of lifestyle competition. We fa- face a lot of educational uh, competition. Um, handwork is being stripped out of of schools at a tremendous rate for a number of reasons. You know, it's expensive. There's liability questions. There's there's problems with with what you teach. Um, and I think the educational system really doesn't pay attention to uh, things like the, the the theory of Sloyd and how handwork. Uh, influences uh, cognitive development, you know, 
problem-solving skills, and even and questions of, of esteem. Helps you uh, understand math and science better. Yeah. and uh, Better engineers, better architects, better everything. Yeah, and, I, and I'm sure when, when uh, you were a kid, and, and I'm sure you took probably woodworking and possibly metalworking, yeah, uh, and we possibly, had shop class yeah. in junior high school. Yep. Yeah. Well, you know the the common thing that you would hear at the end of the day is a kid would go home and say, "Look what I made." Yeah. You know, and 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 that's rapidly disappearing. I'm um, still. We still. It's funny that look what I made thing. We still say that. And I was talking to one of your guys who assembles all the. By the way, another Veritas thing is they're all hand assembled here, um, uh, right here in Ottawa. Um, I was talking to one of the guys. He said he was a machinist most of his life. He's a guy over there who does hand assembly. He's got a big mm-hmm. white beard. You know the guy. And um, and he's, and we just were just talking for two minutes. And it didn't take us long to talk to get on this topic and talk about, he said, I just always loved machining. And I said, me too, you know. And uh, it's back to that. He, he brought it right up. And in 60 seconds, he said, I love the idea of taking some raw materials and making that into something beautiful. And that's something that kids are not getting to experience in the real world. And it's, uh, it's kind of sad. I always come back to, there's a lot of things grabbing for your attention today, like you said. Um, and, they give you ple- and they give pleasure, for sure. But I don't think they give satisfaction. No. And I think there's a difference between happiness, pleasure-wise, and satisfaction, which is deeper and which is lasting. The things that I've accomplished in woodworking, the things I've made, I, number one, I live with them. And two, I'll never forget them. I earned them, you know. And, you know, I think that's a sort of a, a joyful feeling that, that uh, not to get too philosophical about it, but I think that's a feeling that, you know, that younger folks today aren't, you know, aren't uh, experiencing. And, I, you know, the hope I hold out is that, these things are cyclical and that, that, you know, the computer's a shiny new toy and the flat screen's a shiny new toy, but eventually that movement hopefully will run out of steam on some level. Do you think that way? Um, well, I, I would optimistically, ha- I would, optimistically? I, I would have to be optimistic about that, but I don't think it's going to go away. Um, no, because definitely I, not. you know, I, I look at the things that society rewards, um, and you know, it doesn't reward the skilled plumber or the skilled electrician or uh, or the craftsman um it does reward you know the currency trader or the game developer yeah or you know and, and and you look at the success stories and the models you know who is going to develop the next apple computer if they don't actually do anything with their hands you yeah. know steve jobs you know worked you know with the bits and pieces <laughs> you know he understand how to make things how to put them together how to create and if you don't do any of the manual work, you've lost that whole element of, of physical creation yeah. upon which, you know, most of our economy is based or has been based. Uh, and that's rapidly disappearing. Uh, when we go back to talking about manufacturing, it is really tough to find, uh, you know, an injection molder, for yeah. example, who wants to produce 5,000 or 10,000 of something. You know, the Chinese will. They want to make 5,000 of anything. Mm-hmm. North American companies, it's not a big enough quantity to right. be interesting. And, you know, that's where manufacturing heads mm-hmm. overseas. It's not just because of price. It's also because there are p- people that are willing to do it, <clears throat> excuse me, and they have the skilled trades to be right. able to execute that. Yeah. Um, you know, and we're rapidly losing that. And, and that's where, you know, man, woodworking becomes very important at school, developing those manual skills, developing that, hey, you know, I can make this here yeah. instead of I can buy it over there. An understanding of physics and materials in the, in the real world. And I know that everybody listening to this podcast is going to agree with your thoughts about the value of manual labor. And let's just both hope together that, uh, that things turn around. And I can't thank you enough for sitting down with us for a few minutes here. Next up, we're going to get one of the product guys in here and talk a little bit about some of the innovative things you're doing. But I really want to thank you for taking the time to invite me up here and sit down with us on on the podcast. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks a lot. Great. Well, next we'll hear from product designer Steve Jones. But first, a new segment we're dubbing Shop Stumpers. Here's the deal. 
From time to time, we're going to offer up a nice, delicious, vexing question for listeners to answer. Heck, we'll even sweeten the deal by offering some sort of woodworking-related giveaway when we have them. We'll pick one of the correct answers from all those received and ship off that tasty morsel to the lucky winner. Just post your answers in the blog post for this episode. It's number 17. And to find the blog, just go to findwoodworking.com slash blogs and look for the link to the Shop Talk Live blog on the right-hand side of the page. Find this episode, and you're golden. Um, now down to the good stuff. For our debut segment, we're offering an audio stumper. Here's how it works. I'm going to play a couple of seconds of shop-related audio, and I want you to tell us what this sound is. It's that simple. If you're right with the question you post in our blog, we'll put you into the giveaway pool and select one correct answer at random. And since Garrett Hack is perhaps one of our most popular contributing editors, our prize for this first ever shop stumper will be a copy of his book on hand planes dubbed Ruminations Regarding Tools Which Take Very Thin Shavings Off of Wood. Obviously, that's not the title. It's actually a copy of the hand plane book. Um, But anyhow, uh, let's do it. Ready for the audio? Here it is. Okay, just for good measure, I'm going to play it one more time. Ready? Okay, so if you know what that sound is, just post your answer in the Shop Talk Live blog for this episode number 17 at finewoodworking.com slash blogs. Um, Asa, you were also going to Oh, yeah. If you you can come up with a better name for this segment than Shop Stumpers, it's kind of weird to me when you put the word shop and stump in the same... table saw and stump. Yeah, in the same sentence. So if you can come up with something better than Shop Stumpers, then we'll come up with a really awesome prize for you, too. Cool. Well, let's get back to our Lee Valley Veritas interview series with product designer Steve Jones. All right. I'm here with Steve Jones. He's one of the product designers here at uh, Lee Valley Veritas, and I've been dying to meet these guys my whole entire woodworking career because I'm a huge fan. I've got your tool grinder rest. I've got the honing guide. I've got the, oh, it goes on and on, the wheel marking gauge and et cetera, They're just more Veritas products than I can even think of right now. So um, tell me a little bit about um, how that process has changed. I know that you guys... I mean, these guys seriously design from the ground up. So I, I know that you guys do a lot of model making and prototyping and stuff. How has that changed with sort of the advent of like 3D printers and everything? Uh, it's made it a lot easier to do things uh, very quickly and to go through iterations very quickly because it, it used to be when we were dealing with something in the computer, uh, because it's on a computer screen, you can zoom into it, you can see it uh, any size you want, you can see all the details, but there's no way to actually know what the scale of it's going to be or if, if something's going to be comfortable, particularly when you're dealing with something like a handle. Um, so the, the ability to create it in the computer, essentially press print or press make and have a part in your hand that you can work with uh, has really allowed us to go through those iterations much more quickly. We, we do the first design, we print it, we test it, we tweak it, we print it again. So what, what we're able to get now is something that's much more refined. Uh, where it used to be you would you would make the model in the computer, you'd send it off to the supplier, and you wouldn't really know what you were going to get until it showed up through the at the door, at which point you're kind of you're kind of locked into what it is. So these modeling machines allow us to to test things much more quickly. In a lot of cases, the the modeling technology is such that we can actually use a lot of these things. It's not like it's just a visual or, or tactile thing. It's no, actually a, gears mesh and everything actually works. Exactly, yeah. So you can actually see how... Uh, a prototype works in real world, at least in plastic. It won't tell you how metal will perform, but it'll at least tell you that if the moving parts are in the right location. It's unbelievable. There's basically, if you, if you, if you, everyone listening to this podcast goes online and looks around, you'll find videos of how these things work. But there's basically a supporting, a lighter honeycomb supporting material on the ones that I saw the prototyping machines you yeah. have that uh, uh, lighter density stuff that supports the heavier density actual prototypes and then gets stripped away. So you can actually have voids inside the product that are later dissolved away so parts can move against each other and it's 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 literally unreal yeah you you can make things with with one of those machines that can't be produced you you can make something that's got you know a ball inside a hollow sphere right there would be no way to make that 
in real life, so to speak. But you can make some pretty incredible things with with. And how quick can how quickly do they crank out a prototype? Is it four six hours overnight? Uh, Well, it it depends on the size, of course. Uh, We've had uh, parts come out in as little as half an hour. Uh, I think our longest build was something like forty seven hours. Right. uh, And it depends on the resolution too. Resolution's fascinating because this thing prints with little molten beads of plastic yeah and the size of those beads is basically your dot matrix yeah. right yeah we can get down to about seven thousand as per layer unbelievable yeah, so it, it the, the parts we get are very close to what they're really going to be and if people go on findwoodworking.com and look at some of the photos i took you'll see um and also in the magazine article we're doing on lee valley's 35th mm-hmm. anniversary um people will see some of these prototypes and how sort of uh lifelike or helpful i mean it's really obvious when you see them um you can even change the colors and stuff like that so that's really fascinating so one of the things well before we before we go to your hottest new property uh pmv 11 steel talk about talk quickly about tell folks some of the products uh you've particular you you've uh come up with and shepherded i noticed that the various designers back there, you guys tend to sort of own a prod, a, pro, a project and carry it all the way through to completion. What are some of the ones that you have worked on? Oh, geez. Recently. Uh, recently, the, the Bevel Up uh, Jackrabbit was, the, I guess, the latest one that I, that I put out. The, uh, the chisel line started that project. The Bevel it. Up Jackrabbit. This is a big jack plane uh, with, a, with a complete rabbiting capability and an right. adjustable fence, and yeah. it's, it's a pretty tricked-out plane. Yeah. That, that plane was... Uh, that, plane actually we we did that really really quickly our, our typical design lead times between starting with a, a a concept and having a product on the shelf is usually about 18 months for a plane uh, with that one i think we got it in about 11 uh, so it, it went really fast compared to everything else yeah <laughs> yeah and uh and what about some of the other um products that you've done uh recently uh, there was the chisels. There is the uh, 35th anniversary wheel marking gauge. There was the dual marking gauge. Uh, I guess a year and a half ago, um, with the small inset plane, was one of the ones that I, I took through the process. Uh, although it's not as much as uh, it's not like it used to be. It used to be when I started here, the designer would take a project right from cradle to grave. Uh, in fact, the designer would be responsible for designing the packaging and the first first attempt at, at writing copy for it. Um, we've since divided that off a bit, um, and we now have a, a dedicated engineering department, uh, which kind of frees up the designer from the, t- uh, the tail end of the design process. So um, we'll design a product, uh, get it to the point where it's ready to go into pre-production, and then it gets uh, taken over by the engineers. Um, and there'll be a lag of you know, several months there where the project is off your desk and you're not thinking about it, and all of a sudden the parts show up, uh, which is kind of neat. I've heard there's a bit of a competition between you guys and the machine shop guy, I met Lester, who runs the whole entire manufacturing plant yeah. over there. And the challenge is design something that we can't figure out how to build. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Lester, uh, Lester uh, the, the machine shop is incredibly capable. I mean, the people down there really, really know their stuff. And they have to. I mean, we're dealing with tolerances that are very, very small. And they're uh, working on the cutting edge of technology as well. Mm-hmm. I saw, you know, incredible, you know, multi-head, multi-access CNC machines where the platter spins around and you can be loading one... Yeah. six-sided work holder while the other six-sided work holder has six different parts all being manufactured at once so the whole th- operation can run continuously with no downtime and yeah. it's unreal very much so and uh, we just finished the skew rabbit plane i believe it was which is a very complex plane because everything is is all the all the features are skewed and oblique to the to the casting it was a very sophisticated ma- um, manufacturing that was required and lester brought the first casting up to into our uh, our office and we said wow that's fantastic and he made the mistake of saying if you can draw it i can make it <laughs> and the gauntlet has been thrown so uh, thus far we haven't gotten to the point where they they can't do it but it's uh certainly with some of the products we've done that the jackrabbit was probably one of the more complex planes we've done just yeah. because of all the holes that are in that in different locations and they have to be really accurately held so it's a that that's kind of a, a bit of a an in-house competition um and it's kind of fun because we're starting to get into some pretty complex products here too as well. So it's, it's ramping up, but as yet we're, we're yet to, to find that we, the shop, that the shop's capability limits what we're able to do. So. Now I know that, you know, I always value Veritas tools because um, they seem built just enough for what I need. You know, it's not, you know, a whole tie 
uh, plane that's going to cost me thousands of dollars, mm-hmm. which to me, at my budget and my way of working, I'm a user, not a collector. And mm-hmm. so that's a, overbuilt for me personally. Everyone has their own choice. But I always felt like you guys' stuff was built exactly as much and engineered just as much as I needed to without sending the price up so high that I couldn't afford it. Uh, right in that sweet spot. But I got to take you to task a little bit on that Buck Rogers block plane that you uh, came up with. It seemed like the designer got a little bit out of control on that new NX nickel block plane. That was me, and I was a little out of control. (laughs) That project was very much to show what we were capable of doing at all levels within the company. So it was the design maximum. It was our manufacturing maximum. The tolerances are as tight as as we could do them at the time. Um, What the nice thing about that is is the, the process of doing that we also learned a lot, and that that knowledge has been brought into our regular line. Um, so that 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 project was very much meant to be over the top, uh, you know, polishing the whole the whole product. Uh, that's something you wouldn't normally do, uh, and costs a lot just to do it. And it also costs a lot in uh, product handling because it, in a lot of cases, it's polished before the final machining is done on it. So they have to be really careful to ca- take care of that surface. Um, but it was done very much as as a proof of concept, it was done to show what we were capable of doing. The range of materials you guys use is incredible. I mean, just to get you to talk about two, um, remind me that we need to talk about the spine of those new saws and how that's sort of like a, a, a resin, you know, there's a plastic fiber in there or, or some kind of a fiber in there, a nylon fiber, is that what it is? And then uh, It's actually, uh, it's a nylon binder. Nylon uh, so binder. The, so the the... the most of the material in there is nylon, uh, but it has a, a stainless steel powder in it. It also has glass fiber in it. So Glass uh, fiber, that's yeah. what it is. And it, it needs all three of those elements. The, the nylon, of course, binds everything together. The stainless steel powder gives it the weight, which is something that normally you wouldn't get in a, in a product uh, in that kind of a process. Uh, we needed the weight. Um, and it was actually the stainless steel powder that made that product entirely possible at all. Which uh, is like an injection-molded injection molded spine. Yeah. Um, which lets you not have the standard old folded brass back. Correct. What are the benefits of being able to mold it? Uh, there, there are several benefits. The, the major one, where, where this project started, uh, and originally the, the spine was going to be a cast metal, um, was to look at different ways of making the saw in a, in a method that was going to be more conducive to mass production. Um, and more cost, more effective, cost effective, more yeah. affordable for people. Exactly. You, you must get a lot of people who think, oh, that saw must not perform well. That spine's made of plastic, and they don't understand that the material is 50 years past plastic or steel, yeah. and that it's actually magnetic, but it's molded like a plastic, yeah. and they can get a saw that performs super well for 70 bucks. I mean, it's a pretty extraordinary product. It, we, we were really happy with it, and we, we were... The project got to a point where we were looking at cast metal, and it just wasn't economic. The, the ability, the the necessity to cut such a fine uh, slot, install a blade, figure out how to attach it, uh, the project had just stalled. Um, and we had a supplier came through our door. There was a complete cold call. He had been he was here here in Ottawa uh, to meet some other of his clients, and he uh, came through our door just to see if his technology was something that we were interested in. Um, and he was actually bringing in a material that was very similar to what we eventually used, but instead of uh, stainless steel powder, it had uh, reclaimed wood in it. Um, that material we didn't, weren't really interested in. He was just about to walk out the door, and he turned and hand us, handed us a, a small little chess piece, a little black chess piece. And he said, what about this? And we took it in our hand, and it was cold, and it was way too heavy for what we thought it was. And it was basically the lights went on, and the, the material and process and the project met at the same time and really changed the whole thing. And it gives us the ability to take a blade, take the stud that holds the handle, put those into the tool, shoot the spine around it, and the whole thing comes out ready to rock and roll. Unreal. Talk about the metal that's in the... You, you have two sort of brother-sister block planes. I have, being a journalist, I have the less expensive one, the DX new block plane. But the NX, uh, which is the one that's styled like a... It has that Buck Rogers kind of style, yeah. I think of it, um, as uh, has a pretty revolutionary metal in that as well. It's a rust-free, pretty much rust-free uh, nickel, some sort of high-tech nickel alloy. It's, it's, reco- it's referred to as a nickel-resist ductile iron. So it's ductile iron very much like all our other planes are, but it has a nickel alloyed into it. And that makes it more or less a stainless, more or less a stainless product. It won't rust, and it was the material. But harder than stainless. Uh, 
about the same hardness. It, it's the same. We run into the same difficulties in manufacturing with it. You have carbides and hard spots and things like that. But it polishes. Uh, does it? What, so why did you go with that versus a stainless? Uh, originally, we were going to go stainless steel for that product. Um, we have we had a couple of uh, products that were stainless steel early on in our history, uh, and they were just beautiful. Uh, they were also incredibly expensive, um, but we felt that for for a plane that was going to be the the caliber that we were trying to get, we wanted something that wasn't going to have to rust. So originally the the concept was to do stainless steel, um, and in fact the uh, stainless steel edge plane that we put out for our thirtieth anniversary was very much just a trial run to find out what it was going to be like. We had existing tooling. We could put the stainless in it. Uh, and we just, we did it and tested it, polished the thing up. And it was, it was again, very fortuitous. We ended up with a product that looked so good. We decided to put it on sale for the 30th anniversary with the uh, stainless steel edge plane. Mm-hmm. That gave us quite a bit of experience with stainless. It taught us that we didn't really want to do it in stainless, um, just because of the difficulties with machining stainless and grinding it and keeping it. Uh, Can keeping it take it, a polish like that nickel stuff? Yep. Oh yeah. Yeah, but because the polish is beautiful on that. Yeah. But anyway, the product that you have is is unreal. I someday, you know, I wish I could afford it. I do love beautiful tools, but I always come from the sort of user side. But speaking of uh, exotic metals, probably the most exotic one in your company's history has to be this new PMV11. Um, we just tested it. Uh, it's pretty unreal stuff. Uh, for folks who don't know, Veritas... The Veritas arm of Lee Valley, their manufacturing and sort of innovation arm, um, has been doing its own blades for quite a while, mm-hmm. for a while now. Yeah. And, um, and this, uh, you know, there's been, everyone knows about O1 and people know about A2 steel now. Mm-hmm. And what you've come up with here is really extraordinary. Talk about the advantages of this um, PMV11 metal, which is a powdered, starts as sort of a powdered metal versus... Uh, the the other steels that people are using now, O1 and A2. Yeah, um, essentially what it is, it's, it's uh, there's a number of alloys that are in it that that give it some of its properties, but its its main advantage is that um, it's the first step in the processing of the material after it's been alloyed is that instead of being cast into an ingot and then rolled out uh, to create bar stock and sheet stock and things like that, its first step is that it's sprayed. Um, very, very, very small particles, and then those are sintered together. To so it's actually, you were telling me this other night, it's just mind-blowing. It's actually, when it's molten, it's actually atomized into the air, yeah. where it forms tiny particles yeah. that are much smaller, actually, than the particles uh, in molten metal on its own. When molten metal is allowed to cool in its molten state in a block, in an ingot, as yeah. you say, it forms chunks. Yeah. These are microscopic, but it forms chunks that, you're, that are called carbides. Yeah. And there's no getting around the size of those carbides. Just, you know, by nature of the traditional sort of steel, you're stuck with these bigger carbides, and they break off in big chunks, and yeah. you get more of a serrated edge. With this powdered stuff, because it's atomized in the air and yeah. it's molten state, you're getting almost a grainless um, metal yeah. out of it, right? But then it's fused back together. So it yeah. atomizes in the air, it falls onto some surface, they collect it as yeah. powder, yeah. and then they're fusing it. Yeah, under very high, you know, enormous pressures and heat, uh, it takes it up to a point where uh, the material isn't liquid anymore, but it will it will compression weld itself back together into a solid chunk. And then through the rest of the process processing, you know, uh, cold rolling that kind of thing, it forges itself into a a, a metallic or a, a homogeneous material. Uh, but what it does is that first step restricts the size of the carbides and it restricts them to being very small. Uh, and much carbides more being not carbide as people know carbide, but it's a it's a scientific term, metallurgy term for the the, the grain, the, yeah. the pieces of grain. Yeah, there are actually little particles of carbide in it, within yeah. it. Are and they? It, yeah, and it, and essentially what that does, it works very much like a uh, cobbled road. You have a softer material with very hard chunks in it, very durable. Um, the but rougher, the, but rougher but at its edge. Somewhat rougher, yeah. The smaller those carbides are, the smoother it's going to be able to get at the edge, and and. Where we, the reason we went down this road is that we found that A2, because it has relatively large carbides in it, at low bevel angles, that's why the, you get brittle edge failure at low bevel angles with A2. Uh, with large this, chunks are breaking off the, on the electron microscope scale. Yeah, it just it fails at the grain structure lines. Yep. Um, with, the, with the PMV11, that doesn't happen or, because it's that much, the carbides are that much smaller, the grain structure is much tighter. Um, and that was the first step into it. And once we got into it, then we started looking at the other 
alloys that were available within that kind of those kind of materials, and we found some just incredible materials. Uh, some of them were their their edge holding characteristics were unbelievable. This you is just some of the, them. This is some of the really really cutting edge stuff that's used in today's landing gear yeah. and stuff like that. It's uh, these are metals that perform unlike any other metal in history. Yeah, very history. very strong metal. Very strong materials for their weight, and because they're so consistent, you don't have to add an extra safety factor into them. But, but at the same time, you knew, and I know this from chatting with you guys, yeah. um, you knew that you needed a material that not only would have this incredible durability, but it, it also needed to be sharpenable yeah. on the oil stones and water stones and things people are using in their shop yeah. and not dish the heck out of your water stone yeah. while you wait for your micro bevel to appear. Exactly. We... Right from the beginning, we didn't want a material that someone was going to have to go out and drop several hundred dollars on diamond stones just to be able to sharpen it. Uh, that was that was certainly one of our limiting features. The sharpenability of a blade is extremely important to anybody that's woodworking because you don't want to get in a position where you're letting the blade get too dull and ruining your work just because you fear sharpening it. Well, diamond stones would get you. Those diamond plates would get you to about 1,200 grit. Yeah. But to really get up to 8,000 where a blade, you know, 8,000 grit where an edge really starts to form, perform beautifully on, on super difficult woods, yeah. they'd need to be having a diamond paste or yeah. something like that, exactly. which is a bit of a pain in the neck. Yeah. Although we do have some diamond lapping films, and boy, you wouldn't believe the edge you get with that, yeah. particularly with something like PNV11. It's just amazing. And it, it holds that edge uh, for for a long time. Huh. And, you know, we, we do have people saying, well, you know, how much longer? Um, it's really difficult to say. Um, it really depends on the material you're working in. Oh, how uh, much longer will it last? Yeah, will the edge last? Uh, we just have a whole – we had a full report and a full test on it in our uh, current issue of Fine Woodworking. Yeah. And Chris Gochner, who's been testing hand tools for us uh, – <coughs> who's been Excuse hit. me. He's a real human, and he really does sneeze. <laughs> It's not just some sort of Android Android yeah. here. I try. <laughs> um, uh, Chris has been looking at hand tools for us for a long time and edge testing and doing all the super hardcore mm-hmm. stuff we do. And he pretty much concluded that it's a pretty shockingly amazing stuff. Mm-hmm. And you guys are going to be offering it. I don't want to say much more than that. I don't have the article right here in front of me, and I don't want to characterize his words mm-hmm. um, and say whether it's the best best but my rec- my recollection is it's pretty close to the best best thing that he found out there that he's ever encountered out there on the market um so you're gonna but it's pricier yeah. and you're gonna be offering this as an option um in your planes and offering it plane blades made of this stuff correct and your new chisels that you guys came out with which are pretty uh cool in themselves yeah. you're gonna offer them with a pmv11 option if people want to go for it yeah those those uh chisels are actually on the on the market now uh, they've been released uh just about a month now. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly with chisels, that was that was where the, the exploration of this material started because chisels have to have uh, bevel angles typically below 30 degrees, um, which at the time really precluded us from using A2 for it. Uh, and that's why we started down this road of a new, a new material, and it has opened us up to planes and everything else. So, so it started as a chisel option for lower bevel angles and yeah. to get the durability. Yeah, I mean, people do a lot with chisels. They pry yeah. a little bit. They pound. Yeah. They pair. There's there's some really distinct things that happen. Those three distinct things happen with a chisel. Yeah. And so uh, it asks a lot of, uh, you know, the same chisel that you're trying to sharpen at a low angle for pairing yeah. is also expected, you know, people expect to pry with that and yeah. when you really probably shouldn't be <laughs> prying. Pound it through right. the top of the paint can. Yes, <laughs> so, well, that too. Uh, it, it will slice through the top of the paint can. <laughs> Steve, our readers don't use chisels to, uh, to uh, open up paint cans. Uh, yeah. le- they probably do, but <laughs> I'd like to think they it, don't. It can do it, though. Yeah. <laughs> if, it can if do you're it. desperate. It can do it. Well, thanks so much for uh, sitting down with us and taking some time and hosting us up here. And um, it's been a real pleasure to meet you guys and, uh, and have these conversations and just geek out. Yeah. about tools. Thanks a lot for spending time with us. No problem at all.